Let's say somebody suggests to you to buy a lottery ticket. And you do it. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. And let's say that as a result of that, you find yourself with a winning ticket and you win a couple million dollars. Is that, is that fate, fate or, an or an accident? ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and sonic bits and pieces we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. I was driving south toward Las Vegas. Went through Goldfield, past Lindy Junction. I was just going to pull off the highway, but then I seen a little dirt road. There in the dirt road was a man lying. Is that, is that fate, fate or, an or an accident? Most days, you wake up assuming that your day will go largely as planned. And most days do. Work, play, breakfast, dinner, sun up, sun down, rinse and repeat. It's the rhythm, monotonous though it can be, that guides us. But then every once in a while, the rhythm goes haywire. In a second, everything changes. Today on ReSound, two stories of regular old days that started out static and ended up seismic. Stay with us. Eva Wisnerska was a very experienced paraglider. In fact, she won the World Cup in 2005. A training run for the same competition two years later began as a routine exercise. But on that day, storm clouds moved in quickly and imperceptibly. In mid-flight, Eva was sucked up into a storm cell that catapulted her higher than Mount Everest. Her chances of survival were next to nothing. Producer Michael O'Kane pieced together the events of her almost mythical journey in his documentary, Birdie. On a recent flight into Shannon Airport, the plane bumped and jostled its way through the clouds as it tilted for landing. Descending from the relative calm of 30,000 feet, the distant Irish countryside both welcomed and warned of the perils of flight. I was reminded of an incredible story I'd come across some months before about a German paraglider, Eva Wisniewska, who, while training for the World Championships in Australia in 2007, was unfortunate enough to have been sucked up in a storm and thrown around in the clouds at 30,000 feet. For an hour, she survived. Wow, hard to believe. The next day, I did a little research, found an email address, and sent a request for an interview. After a bit of persuading, the answer was yes. I was back on the plane to her base near Munich. We had arranged to meet at one of her local paragliding spots on the lower reaches of the Alps, near Bad Tolz. I will buy a ticket for me only one way and for you <laughs> up and down and the ticket for the landing. Hello, I'm Albita I had once taken a parachute jump, a jump where the chute opens automatically. In my case, the chute opened, but the lines tangled behind my neck, pushing my head violently forward. I managed to reach up and pull them apart. I landed in a car park two miles from everyone else. They told me I was lucky. I only need one way. <laughs> now we are going to the cable car. So now we have a nice uh, 
right up in the cable car, yeah, right on the top of the mountain. During the drive, we can look a little bit. Nice view. <laughs> yeah. Especially today, really nice sunny day. Amazing, no clouds, but hot. At this stage, I still hadn't mentioned that I had some difficulties with heights. Yeah, the first thing is when I arrive at the takeoff to look how are the conditions, to look how is the air, if somebody is already in the air, how are the thermals, if it's smooth or if the wind is strong or no, how they climb. So I can already make my first picture of the air, of the moving of the air, so I know what I can expect in the air. If there is nobody, I look at the trees. I had read that Eva had a nickname. I have a nickname, <laughs> it's Birdie. Actually, I got it in Mexico. Um, the pilots there call me Pajarito, which means small bird. Now I'm Birdie. <laughs> I had spoken with Eva on the telephone before I came over, and had suggested that we could maybe do a tandem flight and I could record while in the air. She sat perched on the other side of the cable car as it swung high above the ground and looked concerned. Are you scary? No, no. No? <laughs> but you wanted to fly with me. <laughs> it would be much higher. GPSs and Vario. Two. Two. This is for the competition. I mean, a hobby pilot doesn't need it. He needs only one. But sometimes the technical. Ava Wisnerska is one incredibly lucky woman, and she knows it. Apart from some frost GPSs. Is this the one you used in Australia? Yes. And they still work. Everything. What's a Vario? Vario is an instrument which is measuring. Measuring. Uh, the pressure of the air. Eva so is no ordinary paraglider. She is in fact one of so the best the in the world. Winning numerous international and titles, is a member of the German so national team and travels the world as a professional, competing with an elite group of pilots. Uh, really close, like a sleeping bag. In the harness I have the additional rescue parachute. So in case the glider collapses and doesn't open, I still have an option. Till now, I had only conditions I could fly without. <laughs> you can see the wind is turning and this is the highest takeoff. I have the mostly altitude to find the thermal. I will prepare the harness. And when I'm ready, I go and I can show I won't take off. <laughs> I watched as Ava took off effortlessly, without me. So I took the cable car back down and waited in the landing field to hear the real story. A remarkable story, a deadly story. Not 
the extraordinary story of a paraglider who was sucked up by a storm front in northern New South Wales into the realm normally reserved for jet aircraft and survived. As I sat in the landing field waiting for Ava to fly down, many other paragliders swept in silently, landed, picked up their gliders and walked off. I must go up to the skies again, to the peace of silent flight, to the gull's way and the hawk's way, and the free wing's delight. And all I ask is a friendly joke, with a laughing fellow rover, and a large beer, and a deep sleep, when the long flight's over. Then Ava landed herself, gathered her chute and walked towards me. And as she landed, just behind her, a colleague and fellow pilot landed, but hadn't seen her since she'd returned from Australia. So you can feel free. <laughs> this is the first time I've seen her since that incident. I've been flying for four years. I think it's what everybody has always wanted to do. At least I used to have dreams when I was a kid. Um, just flying, being able to fly, fly other places, being independent. And that's what sort of happens to you with, with Peregrine. People think you take off somewhere and then just land. But we t- take off and rise and fly other p- other places, go sightseeing, get scared sometimes, do the wrong things, yeah. <laughs> talk to the birds. Yes, you can. You fly with birds sometimes too, because there are there are birds. Well, you follow birds because birds will always circle in the in the thermals. Like I had a situation in Chile where where um, condors were flying in a big circle in a thermal, and I joined them because I had heard the very lazy. Uh, they'll really only fly if there's enough uplift and so on. And I just joined them, and we stayed in the same thermal for about eight minutes, ten minutes, just looking at each other. And then I got boring for them, and they flew on. Amazing situations you can experience. And you can do it all over the world. Just take your little glider with you everywhere. Just now is the first time I've seen her since that happened. What did you think when you heard about it? What did I think? I said, Jesus Christ. Of course, when we heard about it, she had survived, and when heard that, that she was safe, but my God. She was very lucky, but she's the kind of person that deserves to be lucky, I would say. On Valentine's Day, 2007, Bertie set out with another 200 paragliders for one of their final training sessions ahead of the World Championships in New South Wales. We will hear comment from and about two other paragliders, but first, Eva. We went to Australia to prepare for the Worlds. The competition was a cross-country competition and every day open distance. So our goal was to fly as far as possible every day. The wind was coming from south, so we flew direction north and at the briefing they said there is a possibility of, of overdeveloping of the clouds. So we knew there can be thunderstorm and actually already at the takeoff we could see two clouds growing very fast already but in big distance so it was not really danger for us. And from my experience I knew about 10, 15 k's from the cloud, I'm actually safe. But I didn't know there is a inversion keeping the other clouds low, but there was one 
and when I tried to pass one, probably the inversion broke, so the hot air below the cloud, like a balloon, if you blow a balloon and then you make a hole, the, the air rush out. And probably this happened, so the lift was so strong, I had the maximum about 20 meters per second, so even if you spiral down with 17 meters, you are still climbing or you are sinking only very, very slowly. So I tried it three times and then I realized it doesn't help. The lift is too strong. Unfortunately, the lift didn't stop. Another professional pilot and acquaintance of Avis is Nikki Moss. She was also training that day and watching the weather. And it was obvious it was slightly different. Things were happening slightly faster, but it still didn't look, as, as we set off earlier on, that there was going to be, going to be any drama. Um, but while we were on course, the, the, there was two big thunder cells that started moving quite quickly and, and um, joining together, basically. Uh, I guess, in effect, making a, a supercell. Um, quite scary. Uh, I, I was flying thinking that th this is starting to look unpleasant. The lift was bringing me higher and higher and I couldn't do anything. It was just too strong. When I reached 4,000 meters, it was already raining and hiling. And then I knew, oh, then I realized now I really, I'm really in danger. And I said on the radio to my team leader, I cannot do anything. And then I knew I'm facing to the thunderstorm. Clouds suck. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a fact of flying. Clouds do suck. In general, small clouds uh, are quite, quite dealable with, and it's not a big drama, but, but storm clouds, QNIMS, uh, they, they are death in the sky. You just don't go there. And probably the big clouds eat it, the small one, and then they grow to a big thunderstorm. What and could you see at this stage? I couldn't see anything. At the moment I got sucked into the cloud, I couldn't see anything. In the beginning I could see the glider. I had to work really hardly to keep it open because of the turbulences. But after a short moment, it was really dark. Inside, is, it's like a fog. So if you drive a car, sometimes you can only see a few meters. And I could only feel the glider and all the turbulences and then after a while I could hear the lightnings and then I knew I'm really just in the middle of the storm. I mean we're flying in something that, that we can't see so the, um, I mean many people have said that if we could actually see the air we wouldn't fly in it. If you, if you look at a stream or a river and you see eddies and swirls and currents, I mean that, that's what we're dealing with, but in something that we can't see. So you never actually know what's going to happen. 
um, you deal with it as and when it does happen. You, you obviously through through experience, you have an idea of, of what might be occurring in a particular place, but you never know. First, I could hear it in front of me, so I thought, okay, I should fly in the other direction. But it it was not possible to keep the direction because the glider was just turning itself. And then I heard another lightning behind of me and I knew, okay, it doesn't help. You don't know which direction you must fly, where is the cloud? And so I was just thinking, okay, what can I do? I was thinking to use the reserve parachute, but then you have really no control. So I decided to let the glider fly and to keep it open, to try to keep it open. and to do not use the reserve. But of course, at the moment, I didn't know I'm going to get unconscious. Should my end come while I'm in flight, whether brightest day or darkest night, spare me your pity and shrug off the pain, secure in the knowledge that I'd do it again. For each of us is created to die, and within me I know I was born to fly. Then I woke up again, did you know you were, you were likely to go unconscious or did you...? Uh... No, I, I didn't know I, I'm going to lose the consciousness. It's why I decided to try still to fly, to hope to go out of the cloud somewhere. You couldn't talk Eva to didn't realise it, but He Zong Pin, a Chinese paraglider, was being thrown around only 500 metres away. Now both were at 15,000 feet. Well, I, I could only feel the very strong lift and I could feel the moment when I get uh, unconscious. It was like when you... I try to describe if you have a car with just start from zero to 100 in five seconds, you can feel like your body get pushed into the seat and your head to the back and imagine if you don't have any support in back of your head your head is going really back you cannot keep it up with your muscles and it was the same i could feel very strong power pushing me in my seat and i could feel like the blood is going out of the head so it was like blackout Eva was about to be catapulted to the cruising altitude of a 747. From where we were, it was it seemed strange and risky for people to be carrying on. Um, but obviously, everybody's in their in their own their own world, their their own air. Um, so I guess the people who were further on could see the blue out the other side. Were thinking that they they'd probably be okay. But for, for me and, and a lot of people, it, it did seem a bit of a risk. Um, and it was later in the day that um, we found out that one of the Chinese team was missing. And we heard that, um, that Eva um, from Germany had, had been sucked up into the cloud. And I could really feel the moment. Of course, I realised I'm in very big danger and I couldn't believe it. And I was really angry with me um, and with the cloud because the cloud was looking really not dangerous and I was asking how is it possible that the small clouds um, grow so fast and but okay I couldn't change it and 
I was thinking, okay, concentrate, what can you do? Really focused on that's what I can do. And it was to don't panic, to, yeah, keep the glider open. And of course, I was really asking the angels or God or whatever is there to help me on, and to do not let me die. There is a secret that the birds are learning, where the long lanes in heaven have a turning, and no man yet has followed. Therefore these laugh hauntingly across our usual seas. I'll not be mocked by curlews in the sky. Give me wings, magician, or I die. When I woke up again, I didn't know how long I was unconscious. And I was thinking it was like blacking out for maybe seconds, like sometimes driving very tired and you feel your eyes get closed and then you woke up again and it was maybe one or two seconds. And I was thinking it was very short time, so I just tried to fly again. But then I realized I don't have the handles in my hands and I said, oh, I lost them. So I tried to grab them, but they were too high. I was just lying in my harness. And then I realized that everything is with ice and my gloves were covered with ice. And I said, wow, <laughs> okay, concentrate again, fly straight. Then I tried to cover my face with the hands and just keep straight. I was completely wet and frozen, shaking. And I wanted to see how high I am. Then I scratched the screen of the GPS and I have seen I'm still on 6,900 meters. So I knew it's still very high and I still have to be very patient. I was still in the cloud. I couldn't see anything and it was still hiling and raining. But I was very lucky and happy because my glider still was flying, which was really incredible after all the water and ice. It's been suggested that the fact that Eva did lose consciousness certainly helped her to survive. I mean, I didn't panic really, but like this, my body slowed down and I didn't need so much oxygen as usually people do. So I think this also saved my life. Nikki and all the others on the ground really feared the worst. Everybody was, was obviously really upset that there was a pilot missing at the end of the day. I mean, it's, it's not... We're a travelling band of nomads and we meet up in in various corners of the world and, and you meet the same people all the time. So when one of you's missing, it's, it's difficult to describe how you feel. Um, obviously, we didn't know what had happened. I couldn't see the earth and I tried to fly straight, but if you don't see anything, it's very difficult to keep the direction. It's like in the water, you, you don't want, if you fl swim with the stream of the water, you cannot feel if you are going to the right or to the left, you are just floating inside. After a while, I realized the, the, that I'm no more climbing. I started to turn faster and faster, and then I managed spiral down about 3,000 meters. 
And when I have seen that the cloud opens and I could see the first parts of the earth, it was incredible feeling, really like coming back from the cosmos. <laughs> And I knew, wow, now my chances are growing with each meter, I think. Then I stopped turning and was looking where can I land. I was somewhere, I didn't know where, I couldn't see any roads. There is nothing and if I land, I have no radio. I must be somewhere close to the civilization. And I have seen a farm or I didn't know, a building with some cows. So I said, if there are animals there must be people somewhere around so i managed to fly there and to just to turn against the wind and really to land very soft like you have seen today here people landing against the wind really nice and when my feet hit the ground <laughs> I eva was blackened by frostbite to her ears and her knees covered in bruises after being battered with hailstones the size of oranges. She had landed 65 kilometers from where she had taken off. There was no news yet of He Zong Pin. But I was not jumping, wow, I survived. I was happy, but I still knew I'm in danger because I was frozen, completely frozen. So I knew I must warm up. So I started running a few meters, but I couldn't. So I just lie down on my harness, curl, and was shaking and waiting. I had no better idea. And after maybe three minutes, I don't know, my phone rang. And it was my team. And I said, wow, I have a phone. <laughs> and I could give them my coordinates. My GPS was still working and they were really happy to hear after one and a half hours to hear from something from me they they probably thought that wasn't yeah our team leader said this was the worst time in his life waiting from the last call from the radio waiting for this sign that i I'm still alive. An elite Chinese paraglider caught in the same storm was not so lucky. Both were practicing for next week's world championships and organizers are describing the survival of even one of the paragliders as extraordinary. Michael Vincent reports. Eva Wisniewska is one of the world's top paragliders, a former World Cup winner. While practicing Did you know the ago, paraglider that died? Coming together. No, I, I didn't know the paraglider uh, which died. I heard after when we came back to Manila and then in the night I heard they, they are still missing one pilot the Chinese pilot and I knew the chances are very low to survive that but it was already dark and I was very scary for him and next day they said they found him how and did that make you feel? it was horrible because I knew at the moment he probably died, he got hit by lightnings. His GPS recorded the maximum altitude, I think about 6,000 meters. Then it stopped. They think it was the time he got hit. And I was only, at the time I was only 500 meters far from him. 
and I could hear the lightning, so probably it was the same time. Chinese paraglider He Zongpin didn't survive to tell his story, and hopefully his journey into the heavens wasn't too traumatic. As for Ebert Wisniewska, Godfrey Winnes says everyone's still shaking their heads at her luck. I reckon, oh, in, in our previous experience, like there's been, like for example, in, back in the late early 90s, there was a hang gliding competition in northern Italy in the Alps, and seven hang glider pilots got sucked up into the cloud, seven were dead. Minuscule odds of surviving that she's, she's come out with, um, which everyone is just shaking their heads. Paragliding World Championship organiser Godfrey Winnes speaking to Michael Vincent. It took them about 20 minutes to come to my place. And I had time to, to slow down and to think about it that I survive. And I knew, okay, now I'm, I could feel my frostbites, my ears mm, hurt really, and I could see the leg. But I said, it's nothing, I'm alive. So nobody could believe it. Then I, I could see on my GPS how long I have been in the air. Wow. I have been in the cloud for more than one hour. Later, I, I have seen it was almost one and a half hours. Two weeks later, I was still looking at the incident like it was not me. I still can't believe it. Stefan Mast was in communication with his pilot during her fateful flight. That is, they came with the helicopters from Sydney, so he let only two reporters one TV and one from the newspapers. These two <laughs> spread it in all the world. And live interviews for, for America, incredible. <laughs> I was curious to hear from Eva how things might have changed after such a dramatic event and whether she was having any second thoughts about her life in the sky. Nikki Moss also has her thoughts on this. Do you think it's a natural thing for, for you to be up there with the eagles? I don't think it can be natural, given that we're hanging under a piece of nylon with lots of string, but it's as, it's as natural a way to fly, right, for a human being to fly, as there possibly is, yeah. If you're flying in competition, you've perhaps got 150 people flying with you, and it, it probably looks most unnatural. Okay, looking up at 100 gliders climbing out in a very small thermal, they, it, it looks like butterflies. E even as a pilot, standing on the ground and watching people fly is exciting. Whoa, loud. Yeah. <laughs> Especially for us. Up in the sky, a bird does soar, high and swift, asking no more. Its wings lift and then fall. With majestic beauty, it sings a call. It is so free, and I am not. I wish I were he, and he were not. After the incident, I had already new experiences. I mean, I had a lot of time to think about my life and about my ambitions and about competitions and flying and I decided to to change the risks I, I want to make. It's very difficult to say, okay, I do not fly. Is your attitude to life different? What, mm. what changes? Uh, the first thing was to see how beautiful life is. And how much we have to lose. And then I started to think, I don't want to lose it only because of some cups on, or some nice places I have won in my life. 
flying is beautiful and life is beautiful and I don't want to take the risk not so high and to do also something for my parents and to do something for my future maybe to have family I made the first step I have a flat now close to Munich I have a great job in the paragliding factory the very interesting point for me was they offer me work also if I decide to stop flying competitions and this was very new for me because till now I have offers only because of the results and this was also the pressure I had because I got only money when I won and now of course I want to win but I don't need to take the risks and I really enjoy to have a flat it's very new feeling for me when I painted it it was very hard work but after that I could sit in the chair and just look to see my beautiful carpet which I brought from Morocco and I didn't have any place to put it but now it's lying in the middle of the room and I can just look how beautiful it is <laughs> it's totally new for me for the time I had I was happy with traveling but now I'm more happy having a point or having a home where I can go back. Eva had spent most of her professional career living in and out of a camper van. And yeah, to have place for my family, they can visit me now because sometimes I said, oh, I don't have time to visit you. Maybe you can come to visit me. And they ask, yeah, but where can we visit you? <laughs> Things happen because because of something. And I was always looking for the reason why did the thunderstorm suck me up and I couldn't find the reason and then I thought yeah probably to reflect about their life about what I'm doing probably I still have many beautiful or important things to do in my life it is probably like this <laughs> Do you think in some ways that you're not just lucky that you survived it, but in some ways you're lucky that it happened? I'm not lucky that this happened, but uh, I'm happy about the experience. I mean, it could happen maybe a little bit, I don't know how to say, not so spectacular, <laughs> but probably then the experience would be different. And like this, it is like this. Hi. Ganz schön bockig hier am Landeplatz, ne? Wahnsinn. Ich war, ich war vorher auch ganz schön überrascht. Erst so hoch und dann so von hinten angeflogen. As other paragliders swept in and gathered their brightly coloured gliders for another adventure, Eva chatted with them and caught up with what was going on. Happy, I'm sure, in the thought that the sky was clear and shortly she herself would be preparing for another flight. Although she offered again, I decided not to join her. Yeah. Is this the first time No, but so the third so. And so schon anspruchsvoll. Yeah. Naja. Man sieht sich. She's also a league pilot. 
my new goals for flying. I will try again to win the World Cup and I want to win, but for sure not taking the risk, risks I took before. And to land always safe. Usually we say in the air, actually nothing can happen to you, only hitting the ground, but with my experience it's not really true. <laughs> the beautiful thing is each flight is a new story. Each flight is different and you have new experiences, new things. Yeah. And for me, it was back to Ireland at 30,000 feet in a 737. Birdie was produced by Michael O'Kane for RTE Radio 1 in Ireland. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival. I'm Gwen Maxai. Have you ever had a chance encounter that changed your life? Email us about it. And while you're at it, tell us what you think of the show. Our address is resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Or connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Coming up after the break, one man helps another and it comes back to haunt him. Stay with us. accidents just happen? I walked a long way thinking about that. I ought to know the answer. I've seen the results of enough of them. Is that, Is that fate, fate or, an or an accident? You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today, we're listening to stories about random, ordinary occurrences that turn out to be not so ordinary at all. On any given day, random events can conspire for or against you. What if you hadn't taken that train? You might not have met your future husband. Or what if you hadn't answered the phone as you were walking out the door? You might not have been in that fender bender. Melvin Dumar was driving home from work one day when he had a what-if moment that came back to haunt him years later. In December of 67... On the 29th of December, I uh, left Gabs in the evening time. I think I must have left there somewhere around 11 o'clock. That was a payday, and like most of the miners, I lived from payday to payday. I was driving south toward Las Vegas, went through Goldfield, past Lindy Junction, where the uh, notorious Cottontail Ranch is located. I was about five or six miles south of Cottontail Ranch, and I had to stop and relieve myself. It was just going to pull off the highway, but then I seen a little dirt road that went off the highway. There in the dirt road was a man lying. thought I'd found a dead body. 
it appeared to me like somebody dumped him there. He had blood on his face and on his shirt. Real baggy pants. Looked like they were about four sizes too big for him. He had a kind of a beige colored long sleeve shirt on. No coat, no hat, nothing. And being the 29th of December, it was quite cold out. I stopped the car. I was contemplating whether I should go get the sheriff or something. But then I seen him moving. I got out and uh, helped him out and put him in the car. Wanted to take him to a hospital. He said no, he didn't want anything to do with doctors or hospitals or police or anything. He wanted to go to Vegas. I said, well, I'm going down to, through Las Vegas. For the first uh, while in the car, he, he just kind of trembled, you know, quite violently. You know, he was shaking and everything. But, uh, he was curious about who I was and what I was doing, and I told him about being in the Air Force, and I wanted to be a pilot and all that, and they wouldn't let me be a pilot because I didn't have a college degree. And, but I tried to get a job at Hughes Aircraft, and that's when he told me that he owned it. He was Howard Hughes. So, John, you're uh, the one friend of mine who is especially fascinated by Howard Hughes. What can you tell me about him? A totally unusual, strange guy, but really, really, really rich. He was born, I think, relatively poor. He made his reputation in Hollywood not only as somebody who was pioneering in the movie business, but also in a lot of things with uh, aircraft. He eventually became the controlling power behind RKO Pictures, which was one of the largest movie studios. And then he made a tremendous amount of money creating something called the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Most of us know that he became this utter, strange recluse surrounded by a lot of rich bodyguards. And this is a guy who wouldn't shake hands with people unless he and they wore gloves. He became totally a germaphobe. There were all these stories about him, you know, that he would actually collect his own bodily fluids. He built the Spruce Goose. This whole plane was pretty much built of balsa wood, but it was the largest plane that had yet been made. So he gathers everybody there in the harbor to see him take it off, and he gets behind the controls. We are airborne for just a moment, and we were really up in the air. We were really up in the air. And I don't know whether, Howard, did you expect that? It just never took flight. So that was a really big failure. And I thought he was a little weird, a little strange, because he looked like a bum to me. I dropped him off. I took him to the Sands Hotel. It was probably somewhere around 3 o'clock in the morning. I had no clue that he owned it at the time. I pulled in the front. The old man kind of panicked, and he wanted me to take him around back. And so I took him around back. Before I dropped him off, he asked me if I had any money, so I just gave him some change, and, and uh, you know, because I thought he wanted to, you know, buy another bottle of wine or a cup of coffee or make a phone call, you know, who knows what he wanted for. And uh, so I gave him some change that I had in my pocket and just told him goodbye, and then I left. And I never heard from him again until... You know, here's something I just found on the web that I've never heard, and this is, like, so strange. I, I just love this. Apparently, he became obsessed with the 1968 film, Ice Station Zebra. You are 300 feet below the surface of the North Atlantic. On board the American nuclear submarine, Tiger Fish 3. If you haven't seen it, it's one of the worst disaster military movies ever made. Your destination, a secret outpost at the top of the world. Ice Station Zebra. 
Take her up. And apparently he had this movie running on a continuous loop in his home. He must have watched it, you know, they says here 150 times. This movie is so bad. Wow, that's... Boy, this must have sent him into a whole other level of craziness. Now, I have to be upfront about this. As much as he was a public person, there's a huge enigma quality to him. So I, I do have to say it's really hard to tell which Howard Hughes stories are true and which are not. Just go check it out, and you'll find out that I'm not lying to you. From my perspective, this is what happened. And I never heard from him again until 1976. I had a little gas station, a little mini market in Willard, Utah. A guy came in to the station. I didn't know who he was or where he came from. I was uh, had some school books open, and he just kind of almost snuck up on me. He started talking to me, asking me about Hughes and, and, and who I was and if I'd ever met him. You know, I thought that was strange because it was only a couple of weeks after he died. I told him about, you know, well, I picked up some bum a few years before that that said he was used, but I didn't you know, know if it was him or, or not. The lady came in to the station, and so I excused myself to go wait on the, the lady. After I got finished with her, he was gone. I didn't even see him leave. After everybody was gone, I went back and was going to, you know, do the schoolwork I was working on, and uh, there was an, that envelope laying right on my books. I picked it up and I thought, what the heck is this? I knew this guy was the only one that was in there, so he had to have left it, but um, he didn't tell me why or anything. It was addressed to David O. McKay, who was the president of the church, but at that particular time, I, I don't think he was the president anymore. I think he'd passed away and there was somebody else. Even though I was uh, raised Mormon, I wasn't that active, and so I wasn't even sure who the president of the church was at that time. My curiosity is uh, I wanted to see what it was all about and, you know, and why it ended up with me. And so I went and uh, opened the envelope, steamed it open, and read it, and it, and it scared me to death. I, Howard R. Hughes, being of sound, mind, and dis... Oh, jeez. This is so kind of messed up Disposing... There. Disposing... Mind. Mind. And, in memory. In memory. Not acting under duress, fraud, or undue influence from any person whomsoever, and being a resident of Las Vegas, Nevada, I declare this to be my last will. It was a three-page will of Howard Hughes, uh, written on uh, yellow legal paper. After my death, my estate is to be divided as follows. First, one-fourth of all my assets to go to the Hughes Medical Institute of Miami. Second, one-eighth of my... I didn't know what to do with it. Third, one-sixteenth to go to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, David O. McKay. I put it back in the envelope and... Uh, <laughs> I took it out several times and reread it. I couldn't believe what I was reading. <laughs> Eight one sixteenth to go to Melvin Demar of Gabs, Nevada. And your name is spelled. It's misspelled. Spelled, it's spelled wrong. They estimate it to be somewhere in excess of hundred and fifty million dollars. Wow. And uh, so <laughs> I thought somebody was pulling a joke on me. You know, I, I didn't. I didn't think it was real. But then I, I read it several times, and I thought, well, who would even know that I picked up Hughes?
Most of the people I told were related to me. And this guy that brought that, I had no clue who he was or where he was from. I actually thought about throwing it away. And then I thought, if this is real, it would be very unfair to everybody else that's named in there uh, to throw it away. So that's why I decided to take it to the church. A couple of days later, I heard on the, the radio that a mysterious woman had delivered a, a will purportedly Howard Hughes's to the Mormon Church office building. I just thought, well, you know, if they think a woman delivered it, I'm just going to go with it because I, I, I thought somebody at that particular time that somebody was trying to pull a joke on me. I, I, I didn't know if it was real or if it was fake or, or what the heck was going on, and I didn't know who the guy was that brought it to me. And uh, there was just a lot of unanswered questions, so I felt that it would be easier for me if, if I just went along with the, the notion that a mysterious woman had delivered it. So, and it was mainly because I was scared to death, and I, I didn't want to be responsible. I didn't want to be accused of writing it, which I knew I would. The vast wealth of Howard Hughes, whose bizarre life has spawned in a state battle almost as unusual, finally moves toward distribution Monday with a scheduled trial in Las Vegas on the authenticity of the so-called Mormon will. The Mormon will at issue in court this week was found... Who were your main opponents in the trial? Who was trying to keep you out of the will? Hughes' relatives. What evidence did you have at the time that validated your interest in the will? I think one of the best uh, things we had going for us was the FBI, uh, the crime labs and stuff that compared the ink. They knew exactly what type of ink that the will was written with, and it was the ink that was taken off the market four years before Hughes died, and it was the exact same ink that they matched up the will was written with, as was written with other memos and things that Hughes had written. When we got into court, it just depended on who was paying the handwriting experts, this is what they'd say. The judge told each side that they could only have five handwriting experts, you know, testify. And so when we got into court, those five handwriting experts, or supposed handwriting experts, said that it was authentic, and those five of them that said it wasn't. So it just depended on who was paying the bill, I guess. And they gave me polygraph tests, but they gave me several of them, and, and they would ask me the identical questions and one polygraph expert would say that I was lying, another one would say I was telling the truth. So, you know, who, who do you believe? You know, it's, it's, it's a tough situation. What was some of the other evidence against your case? I don't know. <laughs> other than, the, other than the, 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 uh, his aide saying that he never left, that, that, that they used against us. I had a western band and I was playing at a church singles dance down here in Riverdale, Utah, the night they came back with the verdict. I think it was one of the guys from KSL, Channel 5, that told me that the verdict was in and that, and that they'd found uh, against uh, the will and said that they, they felt that someone other than Hughes had written it. And the jury said that why they went against us is because there wasn't any evidence at that time to show th that he was out. I, I, was, I was kind of expecting it, but I was, I was really hurt and devastated. And I, I know I just left the dance. I, I left and, and went home. What'd you do? <laughs> 
Oh, I don't know, just kind of beat up on the wall a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was upset, but I don't, I don't know. I just, I just tried to get away. Yeah, it. <laughs> Shoot. You know, everybody was you know making fun of me and everything you know before and, and accusing me of writing it and, and, and you know when they said that they felt it was a fake then then I knew that it would be all the worse and um, which it was you had knives and, and guns pulled on you can you tell me about that oh it's just uh, like, like one guy there nogged and pulled a switchblade and said he was going to cut my heart out if I didn't give him fifty thousand dollars and I you know I didn't have fifty thousand dollars and I would never give it to anybody like that anyway so I just you know, uncertain terms, told him to start cutting because, you know, I, I uh, you know, I just wasn't going to go for it. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't really been easy because uh, through the years I've been denied, you know, business opportunities and been denied credit and job opportunities and, and everything else. I would have been better off if I'd have never picked use up at all. I mean, financially, anyway. But there has been, you know, a few things that's come of it that I probably never would have experienced had it not have been for this experience. Like, I've, I've had opportunities to travel around the country and be like on Good Morning America and the David Letterman show. If somebody told you a story similar to this, how would you respond? Well, knowing what I've been through, I... I may be skeptical, but I, I wouldn't come out and tell them they're a liar. I think I would try to check the facts and everything, you know, before I made up my mind. So, and where does this story stand now, Melvin? I guess it's just gone dead. Uh, the um, attorney has tried to reopen it, but uh, the court system, uh, the court of appeals and stuff, they just treated it like it was a big joke and they just laughed about it and they says so too late, you know. I wanted to be a pilot, but I also love to entertain and I and I love to sing and I write songs. I even wrote a song about about Howard Hughes, you know, that I did in shows in Reno and stuff that uh, called Thank You Howard. But um, Could you play it for me? Uh-uh. No. Oh, come on. <laughs> no. Man. Really? Oh. <laughs> I might sing part of it for you. But <laughs> Could you? Could you sing some? Thank you, Howard, for leaving me something. But all I got was frustration, and I'll never live it down. Oh, how I wished you were still around. No, I don't care what the papers say. I didn't do anything wrong. I'll never see the millions you left me, but I know you sang my song. So thank you, Howard, for leaving me something. But all I got was frustration, and I'll never be the same. But I thank you just the same. <laughs> Thank you.
The Man on the Road was produced by Nick Vanderkolk, Ben Bombard, and Raymond Tungakar with help from John Barth, Brendan Baker, and Mel Ballara for the podcast Love and Radio. In 2011, Nick and Brendan won the Third Coast Festival's Gold Award for the story The Wisdom of Jay Thunderbolt. Find a link to Love and Radio at our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. There can be two types of people in the world, people that believe in coincidence and people that do not believe in coincidence. I think of how many times I've had accidents where I thought, where I think I should be dead. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. Support for ReSound is also provided by Longman and Eagle Restaurant in Chicago's Logan Square neighborhood, serving regional American fare sourced from local ingredients. More information is at longmanandeagle.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. Is that, Is that fate, fate or an accident? Or an accident?